This is Jordan Edwards, and this is the Business Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Good afternoon. I'm here with Ben Kovacs. Ben is a very interesting guy, entrepreneur, uh, been in the corporate world, I believe you work for Twitter. You've had some great startup experiences. I think you may have sold some businesses. You're a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. And uh, one thing I'm really excited to talk to you about is your project, The Guardian Project, which uh, is a nonprofit for kids to uh, bring jiu-jitsu to the world. But before we get into all that, give us a little 411. Who are you, Ben? <laughs> yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, Jordan. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think like... Uh, like many of us, you know, we thought when we were kids, we saw our parents and our grandparents and we thought, you know, you turn 30, you turn 40, you turn 50, you got it all figured out. And, you know, you start to realize, wow, like, especially in this kind of changing world where people don't stay in the same career for 30 years, you're like, who am I? You know, two years ago, five years ago, I was working at Twitter, you know, a couple of years ago, working at a cannabis startup, you know, I've had Guardian throughout, I've got some new entrepreneurial endeavors now, now I'm a father. So I feel like my life is kind of uh, constantly evolving and, and not to sound sort of uh, invasive or even douchey, but I just, I, I'm kind of figuring out, you know, what I want the next 40 years of my, my life to be like right now. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's douchey at all. I think that's, uh, what we're all trying to do, especially all people who practice jujitsu and are on this great path. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in York, Pennsylvania, right in between Harrisburg and Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Grew up there my whole life. Uh, went to Penn state university. Um, when I was 22, I moved down to the Washington DC area after college. And so I spent the first 30 years roughly of my life right in that sort of corridor between middle of Pennsylvania and, and DC. And then uh, right around my 30th birthday, a few days before I turned 30, I moved out to California. So hmm. been here for 10 years. Nice. What, what, was the, what was the draw to California? You know, one of my best friends from college uh, moved out here, my best friend actually, and I used to come visit him. I really liked it. I thought it was a cool vibe. Um, not necessarily anything to do with work and startups and everything. I really was attracted to the weather and the lifestyle and some of the things going on here. And I really planned it as sort of like a one or two year experiment. I was like, you know what? I got, I, I was married earlier in my, my late twenties. We got divorced amicably. And I decided, you know, if I don't, if I didn't do this now, when was I really ever going to do it? If I had kids or got remarried, something like that, you know, maybe that window would have closed. So I thought, let me go out there. I'll move there for a year or two. At least I don't have that experience. I can check it off the box and say I did it. I lived on the West coast type thing. And I just never went home. Nice. So did you go to uh, San Francisco? Is that the, the tech connection? Yeah, I did. I mean, I moved to uh, the Oakland Hills, actually, um, right outside San Francisco, about a 20 minute drive into the city. And so, um, yeah, I just uh, I set up there, ended up buying a house there and kind of lived there for the first four years or so, five years so that I lived in the area. And then uh, when I got married to my second wife, uh, she lived on the other side of the peninsula. And so I ended up moving over. And now we live in Menlo Park. Is she a California native? She is. Yeah. She actually grew up in Menlo Park. Uh, her dad lived in Colorado. She went to school there and then she returned home. She was from Menlo Park before it was, you know, Facebook Menlo Park and Google Menlo Park. And so yeah. she's kind of, she's seen quite a, quite a change there, but, uh, but yeah, now we live here. My stepson's dad lives here. So we're kind of, I hate to say the word stuck, but we're, you know, a little bit stuck here. Uh, we just bought a house down in uh, near Pebble beach in Pacific Grove, California. So we're going to be spending more time at the beach, hopefully. And uh, making that our, our home for the future. Nice. And how old is uh, is your, your your the kid you mentioned? Yeah, I have a nine year old stepson, Kogan, and uh, he'll turn ten in September. And then we have a five year old son, uh, Bo, uh, who's our our son from our marriage. 
I hope that you uh, have them both in jujitsu. Unfortunately, though, the older one, I don't necessarily get to pick his sports being the stepdad. Yeah. So his dad is very, uh, very into baseball, very into football, a couple sports. So he's really focused on those. Um, I just we, we belong to a pool out here, a club kind of thing, tennis and swim club. And yeah. I sort of uh, almost bullied them, I guess I hate to use that word, but really pushed them very hard to starting a jiu-jitsu program and finally got the OK on that yesterday. So he will be starting a jiu-jitsu program at the at the swim club. Um in about two weeks, so I'm, I'm extremely excited about that because, as you might know, uh, it's hard once you you know have a couple kids and you have to kind of run them around town. So getting it all in one place is, yeah. is kind of way to go. And you know, I don't think your five year old needs necessarily like world class jujitsu instruction. They just need to be on the mat. They need to start moving their body. They need to get comfortable with it. And we can take them to the you know the uh, Donna her desk squad or wherever he needs to go. <laughs> later in life. Yeah, um, I have a about to be four year old. In, a, in about a month and I have a uh, 15th old. When I started training to jujitsu in uh, 2009, I was 24 and 37 today. And my, my sensei, he had a, a new kid around that time, Nuri. And he would tell us about his experience with parenting. And he said, you know, you're gonna be driving down the street. You're gonna have your hand on the steering wheel and you're gonna start to bob your head. And then you're gonna look in the mirror and you're going to look back at your kid and you're going to see that they're bobbing their head just like you. <laughs> Everything that you do in life, be prepared that they're going to mirror you and they're going to they're and then they're watching even young. They're watching what you're doing. They're listening to what you're doing. And I was, you know, just in my early 20s at that time. I wasn't it was in my mind, but I couldn't connect to it. And I heard him say it over the years. And then I had a two and a half, three year old. And I'm driving in the car and I'm bobbing my head. And all of a sudden I look back and I'm like, I can't believe that this is happening to me now. Like this is, you know, just like jujitsu teaching me all, the, all these valuable lessons. So, so that, that was my first one. Does that ring a bell for you? Have you ever had that experience? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure like you feel the same way. You know, we want our kids to be better than us, right? Because we don't see ourselves as you know, that awesome and that perfect, right? So <laughs> I'm always trying to be careful now of like, you know, being a little bit better than, uh, you know, being a little bit better than I am in front of the kid to hopefully give, give them the right, right things to look at. Oh yeah. And then he told, he told me this other one, he goes, that one, two-year-old, you're going to be feeding them. They're going to pick up that spaghetti. They're going to look you square in the eyes. They're going to take that spaghetti. They're going to look at that spaghetti and they're going to throw that spaghetti right on the floor. <laughs> you have two options. You could scold the kid. You could lose your patience. You could lose your temper. Or you could just pick up that spaghetti and clean it up and look them right back in the high and, 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 and win that battle. And, you know, had I not had that coaching from my sensei, uh, I don't think I ever, I probably would have lost it, you know, but just now, you know, 13 years of jujitsu training really, really helped me to be, I think, a better parent. So much calmer, never lose my temper. And now it's just jujitsu to me. Like I just look at the situation and I can laugh it off. And sometimes I have to tap. Sometimes I win, sometimes I lose, but uh, I'm, always, I'm always interested with, when I hear, you know, I get a, another parent on the, uh, on the podcast to talk about them with their relationship with the parenting and jujitsu. Yeah, and I think jujitsu, obviously it has a, a number of benefits as I'm sure we'll get into, but I think with, with parenting, one thing that's interesting is that a lot of dads who have kids, they, they stop playing either in high school or college, right? Very, uh, unless, you know, you made it to the professional leagues. So <clears throat> I think that, 
they're looking for their kids a lot of times to replace their dreams of kind of their failed baseball career or their early ending basketball career or whatever it was. And I think that the interesting thing about jujitsu is we're still practicing. We're still rolling with high level people multiple times per week. We still have our sport, if you will, that we're actively participating in. So I think that we're not, at least I'm not anyway, looking for my kid to be my sort of like sports savior. Um, I'm like, hey, I got my own thing. If you want to join, that's cool. If you want to do something different, that's cool. But like, I'm not going to be at, you know, 75 baseball games every month trying to make you, you know, the next Mickey Mantle. So um, I, I think that's that's actually relieved some pressure from the kid because I knew I grew up, my dad was really focused on sports and I think he really wanted me to be good at sports and everything. And I have like almost the opposite problem where I'm just like, uninvolved in my kids sports to a certain extent like not throwing the ball with them very much not not pushing them to play just kind of too lazy fair about it almost because i'm focused on my own jiu-jitsu i hope my mom heard that my mom's always on me about uh, go outside and have a catch with him i'm like i'm gonna show him jiu-jitsu and i'm gonna put him in jiu-jitsu like i'm just not a catch <laughs> kind of guy i'm out here doing jiu-jitsu every day so that, that's funny that you brought that up I'm, I'm right there with you on that so you brought up sports did you grow up playing sports yeah, really, really heavily. Everything, baseball, basketball, football, tennis, soccer, swimming. I mean, I did it all. Um, I mean, you were kind of in a hotbed of wrestling over there in uh, Pennsylvania, down in that corridor. Did, never never picked it up? I know. I mean, I grew up in a town where uh, they had one of the best wrestling programs in the state of Pennsylvania. Wow. And I thought wrestling was so dumb. You know, wearing those singlets was so weird and, you know. <laughs> probably a bunch of other words where I'd offend people if I said it. Now, of course, looking back after getting into jiu-jitsu, I started, by the way, when I was 24, the exact same age as you. And, um, you know, I now, of course, I'm like, oh, my God, I could have had I could have been an amazing wrestler, but I didn't wrestle at all. And, and to this day, I mean, my wrestling is absolutely horrendous. I, I, I was rolling actually the other day at the gym with a guy named Mason Fowler, who you might know. Sure. And Mason said, hey, Ben, don't even try to wrestle anymore. It's just like embarrassing and one of us is going to get hurt. Just, just, <laughs> Just pull guard and just stop. This is terrible. So yeah, it make, makes me uh, makes me wish I would have done it when I was younger. Now <laughs> that's that's really funny. Yeah, Mason puts up uh, a lot of great content. He's all over social media and uh, great competitor. Uh, lo- love watching him rise up. Young guy, right? I mean, he's only in his early twenties now. He's twenty six or twenty seven. Yeah, amazing, amazing athlete. Unbelievably explosive. Very dedicated. You know, always there, always training. I mean, it's. Uh, it's, it's, it's really like training with professional athletes when you're training in that class with those guys, right? They take it very seriously. And I have to remind myself, it's not the 6 p.m. joke time where you play around with your buddies. Yeah. I, I also have the opportunity to train with some very high-level people. And I, it's a very humbling experience to play with them. And then all of a sudden, they have that extra, many extra gears outside of what I'm capable of doing. And you think that, oh, we're having a nice competitive match. But... They just can show you with that aggression and ferocity that no, actually, you are just where you are, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I am on a whole nother plane than you. So listen, so you, you in Pennsylvania, I'm trying to get the timeline right here. You you move out around 30, but you start in 24. So you started your jujitsu journey back home. Yeah, I started in the DC area, Rockville, Maryland, at the Yamasaki Academy, which was the first or at least one of the first couple schools in the DC area, Mario and Fernando Yamasaki School. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into it. I was playing basketball, pick up basketball after college. And um, I don't know, the game started to kind of get get wonky where one day you'd show up and there'd be 50 people there. And the next day there'd be three people there. And I was like, you know, I really need some sort of more consistent 
exercise uh, and, and focus. And, and my buddy was doing Thai boxing there. So he convinced me to go. I went there to try the Thai boxing class. There was a cute girl working at the front desk and she said she did jujitsu. And I thought, well, I mean, she can do it. I, I think I can do it. You know, and I always like wrestling around with my buddies and just playing around for fun. And I mean, I was like immediately hooked. I mean, I just literally cold turkey stopped playing basketball, stopped doing other stuff. I just jujitsu, I instantly fell in love with it and knew it was special from day one. Yeah, it has a really uh, special quality in that way. So I guess that for you was around 2005, if I'm getting, 2006, somewhere in that yeah. ballpark. Did exactly. Any influence from like the UFC? Because the Ultimate Fighter came out in 2005. That was where I like understood what jujitsu was. I, before that, I, I didn't know the difference between jujitsu and capoeira and anything else. And just like you lived in a wrestling hotbed, I was living in a jujitsu hotbed. In my town, there was a Rodrigo Gracie Academy uh, in you know, I lived on the doorstep of Henzo Gracie and Matt Sarah and all these guys. And I didn't even know that it was there, you know? Yeah. No, not for me. I mean, I, I didn't care about the UFC. I mean, heard about it, obviously remembered it kind of from more of the cockfighting days when you had the 110 pound guy fighting the 300 pound guy getting head stomped, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I, I didn't get into it when I started at Yamasaki Academy, there was a few guys there who were extremely friendly and welcoming. And then they started inviting me, pretty soon after started hey come watch the ufc fights with us and then i got into it of course after that because of jiu-jitsu like everybody else but no I, I wasn't watching the ufc didn't want to be a fighter any of that stuff i just kind of stumbled upon jiu-jitsu accidentally and fell in love yeah when you moved out to california did you jump into it right away i did yeah and that's actually a, i think a great point is you know instead of going to the bar or you know collecting other bad habits or whatever i immediately found a home at the half gracie school out here in, in berkeley which was about 10 minutes from my house and then when i started working at twitter i started training at half gracie san francisco under kurt osiander a lot and i kind of oh. went back and forth whether i was like at home that day or whether i was working in the city training at one of those two schools and then about four years after i was there something like that three years i I decided I wanted to start Guardian, and I talked to the owner of House Gracie Berkeley, who's a good friend of mine, Dave Clayhead. I want to house first black belts mm -hmm. about that. Dave's a really savvy business guy, very successful real estate guy, and you know he's also a very scary guy. You know, a very imposing big figure. You know, a guy who doesn't talk a lot, but when he talks, people listen. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize how well he would actually receive it. And he said, wow, like, this is great. Like, I've always wanted to do something like this, actually. He was very supportive. He actually convinced me to hire one of his black belts there at the academy to be my first instructor there. And um, it was a really positive experience. Um, and that was, I think, one of the main reasons we were able to start Guardian was because of the support of Dave and the Half Gracie community. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm excited to talk about that and get to that in a minute or two. Tell, talk to me about uh, landing in the, in the, in the Half Gracie ecosystem i mean it's uh you know of course half and henzo being brothers and they have they have a reputation and half always had like has this you know real tough chip on his shoulder same thing with kurt by you know their accomplishments and also reputation it's the style it's a hard style of jiu-jitsu like a self-defense style a martial art a martial style of jiu-jitsu like what's it like landing there from pennsylvania and jumping right into those that room well, I think because I started in the Berkeley Academy, the Berkeley Academy is is still very tough, but definitely more, I would say, family oriented and and um, a little bit more chill, at least back in the day, whereas San Francisco had more health influence, more Kurt influence. It was a little bit more of like the killers coming from different places that were training, 
you know, full-time or semi-full-time competition type folks. So um, that, I think that eased me into it a little bit, which was good. Um, you know, I, I don't think I ever fit in with that style, to be honest. I was never a big competitor. Um, I was never, you know, focused on training three times a day and drinking protein shakes in between to recover or anything like that. So I always, you know, I think pretty early on, I got the reputation of like, being a, kind of a guy who liked to joke around, a guy who was there yeah. for fun, you know, I was always trying to um, use humor to sort of like de-escalate things, let people know I wasn't there to, you know, win a world championship. I was there to have fun and obviously get better. But, you know, I didn't, I never took jujitsu that, that seriously, like some people did, which I think was good and bad, you know, I mean, it's good, I think, in some ways it's kept me from getting hurt and allowed me to stay on the mat and all those things from not overtraining. But Obviously, you know, I sometimes think like, man, I wonder if I could have been better at jujitsu if I would have like, you know, really, really trained harder and, and focused even more. So it was it was fine. You know, and Half wasn't super involved in the Berkeley Academy, you know, for those years when I was there. He was more focused on San Francisco and sort of his expansion. But yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely some imposing figures there. Right. Definitely some scary guys. I remember one time I was training in the city and I snuck out from Twitter to go for lunch and I was on the mats and I got armbarred by one of those, you know, upcoming little um, savant kids who was 20 years old or whatever. And I think I was a brown belt. Maybe it was a purple belt. Maybe it was a brown belt at the time. I don't remember. I think it was a purple belt. And so I get armbarred and I tap and Half comes over to me and he goes, and I barely knew Half at this point. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you tapping to that? And I was like, what do you mean? Why? I mean, I got armbarred and I got to go back to work in five minutes. And he, and the whole gym got quiet because I kind of just like, I wasn't really thinking, oh, this is how maybe I should be more respectful. I just was like, I'm going back to work in five minutes, man. And uh, and the whole gym got quiet. And then I just saw how his brain just started turning. Right. And he didn't say anything for like three seconds while he was processing. And then I said, oh, fuck, like I may have really I may have really messed up with that comment. And then he goes, OK, let me show you how to let me show you how to do it better next time. And I was like, Whew, that could have went the, that could have went the opposite way. So. Yeah, he's a he is an intense man. That's for sure. A nice a nice guy, but very very intense. I think that was like the most perfect story to encap like to answer my question. You know like that <laughs> that story. I think I think says it all about. I think a lot of these incredible jujitsu practitioners and the Gracie family they brought it here, but it's also their business and their life, and they're all the killers, and they do have a reputation. But they're also you know can be soft and mushy, and and they know how to you know, build community and, and keep people like, I think you and me businessmen, you know, we're not, yeah. we're not, you know, going out there, try to win a championship, uh, in, in, you know, involved and, and keep, you know, pushing on this, this art. So now, okay. So I got the, the jujitsu timeline down a little bit. Give me like the working timeline. When you, when you land in California, do you go working for Twitter right away? Yeah. I, I, I had another job actually when I moved to California and software and kind of accidentally applied to Twitter. I was smoking weed one night or doing something on the computer and, and said, you want to work at Twitter? I was LinkedIn. I hit, yeah, I'll work at Twitter. And uh, they called me three days later and said, hey, your your resume didn't come through. And I said, oh, that's really weird. And I was kind of laughing in my head. Like I didn't upload a resume. I like, literally clicked a <laughs> button. And um, yeah, I interviewed there. I, I got hired there. I didn't have a big job at Twitter, to be honest. I was uh, on our sales team. I managed some really big accounts there, like Comcast and Zillow and different folks like that. But Twitter was um, where I really got my confidence, right? That was the first time I had sort of a job at a big company of that reputation. And I was in there with kids from MIT and Harvard and Stanford. 
and I was doing better than you know most the vast majority of my peers in my job and starting to make friends in different departments and and people were like wow like you're you're really smart you're really good at this and I thought holy shit like I'm just this kid from Pennsylvania pretty small town I thought owning a Toyota Tacoma and having a house was sort of like the pinnacle of success in life and now I'm here competing with the Stanford and MIT kids and I'm actually doing really well like maybe there's bigger things for me in the world and that's I think what gave me the confidence to start Guardian and the confidence to you know go other places because you know, I was sitting there one day thinking of Twitter and they'd asked me to kind of move up through the through the ranks there. And I just thought, like, I'm going to be here for 15 years before I become a you know senior vice president of whatever. And I'm going to be 100 years old. And my kids are going to be graduated. Like, I don't think this is a great career path because I kind of started late. So mm-hmm. I decided to leave Twitter after about three and a half years. And then once I took time off, focused on Guardian for a while, I got that nonprofit to, to where I wanted it to be. And I didn't have to outsource the culture and things like that. Then it allowed me to go back into the corporate world at a much higher level. And I became the chief revenue officer, of one of the larger, largest cannabis companies in the state. And it kind of allowed me to leapfrog because I had that corporate experience, but I had the entrepreneurial experience then. And now I feel like my, my path is kind of well set up for whichever direction I want to go. What... What gives you the what gives you the chutzpah to, you know, to be out there and go and say, I'm working at Twitter and I'm just gonna go do something entrepreneurial and start this, you know, nonprofit. You know, I'm I'm so interested in people who 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 are able to do this. I mean, I'm sure you recognize that virtually most of the people in the world, somewhere in 99% of the people in the world are not entrepreneurial. They don't start businesses. They don't start nonprofits. So you got a great job at Twitter. You're making waves. And then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to do this thing. Why? I think a lot of reasons. I mean, I think first of all, it's like if you don't have a side hustle or some other thing in Silicon Valley, you're almost sort of like the the outcast, you're, you're, you're the anomaly, if you will, right? Like a lot of people have some other project going on or some other aspiration here. It's a very, I would say like type A um, aggressive area for that kind of, for that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Um, you know, without any disrespect to previous jujitsu instructors or current jujitsu instructors that I have, I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way when you go into a store, you, you start a business, you're, you're dealing with a realtor or whatever it is you're almost always thinking if you're a smart person, you're like, this is how I would do it better. You know, this is, this doesn't make sense. Like this guy could, could do so much better if he structured his business this way or, or whatever. And so for jujitsu, I like never was very happy with jujitsu instruction. I always found it extremely weird how you would go to a school or go to a class and a teacher would teach a different move that maybe related to yesterday's move. Maybe it was completely different. Maybe the teacher, maybe you showed up that day and the teacher was like, I don't feel like teaching. So just, go kill each other on the mat type thing. And I, I kind of saw how like a lot of the people who were the best at jujitsu had sort of made their own path. They studied, they, they drilled on the side. They didn't just show up for class and sort of follow a curriculum and get better. A lot of them, they had to do it their own, their own way. And I always thought, man, like this is really strange that um, the way that jujitsu is taught because you had that old school Brazilian mentality, I think of just like, this is how my teacher did it. So I'm going to keep doing it that way. And it's like, wait a second, there's only 1%, let's say, of people who start jujitsu that make it to black belt. They end up being the teachers for the next group of people. So they think this worked for me. And I look at it and say, well, I want to know why it didn't work for the 99%. 
because if we could change that 99% to 92%, that would be a massive, you know, 8x, 8x win in the amount of people that stick with jujitsu. And I really feel that a lot of that is because of the structure of the classes and how it happens. So that was, I think, kind of reason number one. Reason number two was living in the Bay Area being an extremely expensive place to live, rent being really expensive um, for both commercial and you know residential real estate. I thought, this is really crazy. I was talking to a friend one day and he said, I can't put my two girls into jujitsu because it's just too expensive. And I thought, well, you're like a pretty middle-class guy. Your wife works at the University of California, Berkeley. You have a decently successful construction business. And he said, well, I pay for soccer. I pay for swimming. I pay for my rent. I pay for this. And he's like, I just really can't afford the extra three, $400 a month. And I thought, wow, like this is not even a, of course, people who have absolutely no money can't afford jujitsu. But now like lower middle class and even middle middle class people can't afford jujitsu in the Bay Area. Like that's just unacceptable. This is a sport that should really not be that complicated. It's not like ice hockey where you have this really expensive ice time that you have to reserve and take care of, um, you know, taking care of the ice and everything like that, which is obviously going to be expensive. So I thought maybe there's a way we can do it different where we can do it better, where we can get more people, both kids and adults, access to this sport that's changed so many people's lives like you and I. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, yep, that is a, that is one of the things I, I could do it better, and uh, and it's needed. So, all right. So now, tell us what like what what exactly is Guardian? Where is it? What was it then? And, and what is it today? Yeah. So I mean, Guardian really started with that simple mission, right? Let's get kids access to jujitsu that that can't uh, that can't afford it. Um, I ended up partnering with a guy at Twitter who was the head of marketing there at the time, a guy named Joel Lunenfeld. He wanted to start a boxing nonprofit when I told him about the idea or he was passionate about boxing. So I ended up making Guardian at the beginning, both boxing and jujitsu, um, because that was his ask. And so we opened a space and we decided that we wanted to, and it took us over a year to even find a space, you know, in the Bay Area that made sense for what we were doing. Um, but we decided we want to have an adult program and we want to have a kid program too. And the reason we want to have an adult program was for a few reasons. Number one, as you know, like there's a lot of fixed cost with having a gym, pretty much all the costs are really fixed other than the, the per instructor instructor classes. So we thought it made sense to offset some of our costs and we wanted to have some revenue generating models. So we weren't just constantly begging for donations, but we were working towards self-sustainability in the model. And the other reason is we wanted the kids to have mentors and a place to grow into. So when a kid was 16 and he was showing up there every day on the mat, we wanted him to have people that he could talk to about future careers or maybe even get an internship from them or things like that. And something that they could also grow into from a sport perspective. So if you're 15 years old, but you've been training in our program for five years, maybe it's time for you to go into adult classes. But if we didn't have the adult classes, now you're kind of stuck training with 10-year-olds. So that's not going to be a good progression for that student. So we started off with a dual model, kids and adults. We got up to about 550 students before the end of COVID, or sorry, before the beginning of COVID. And then obviously the pandemic had a big effect on us. We had just expanded to a larger space going from about 1,500 square feet to 8,600 square feet. So that was extra tough because we had tripled our rent and we had hired all these different teachers. We had added a Thai boxing program and a strength and conditioning program. We really had this really amazing sort of world-class, almost on it, on it uh, academy style gym where you could come and do everything, um, as well as more space for the kids. So tutoring, 
after school lunch programs, things like that, that we really added, we needed to add in because kids were showing up, they're not eating all day. So we wanted them to be able to study. We wanted them to get tutoring. We even had a paid uh, psychologist on staff to help them with, with some of their problems that they were, that they could be having. So we expanded really big, bad timing right before COVID. And then it was really hard, honestly, to manage. Cause when you think about it, you have all these contracted instructors. So you've got a strength and conditioning coach who cares about the strength and conditioning program. The Muay Thai coach cares about the Muay Thai program. The boxing coach cares about the kids, but he's also got these five fighters he's training and nobody agreed on a mask policy. Nobody agreed on, you know, any, anything, how much there should be training, who should be in the gym, who shouldn't be any of that stuff. So, you know, we went through kind of a rocky period for the first time, I would say. We had this constant growth. Everything was great. A lot of love in the community to all of a sudden kind of a bunch of people that started infighting. And, you know, I didn't have full-time capabilities to manage. I lived 40 minutes away from the gym at the time um, at, at that point. And I just thought, you know, I don't want to manage a gym. I never started a nonprofit to manage a gym. Um, I don't teach at the gym, really. Like, my whole thing was I wanted to create a nonprofit to allow for for these kids to start training jiu-jitsu and so we made a tough decision and we said is this really the model we want do we want to maintain these gyms and what we've done is we've really shifted our model over the last six months or so to where we are starting to become a call it the layer of nonprofit on top of all of these existing great gyms around the world and people are coming to us i probably get three to four phone calls or, or emails a week people saying hey how do I start a guardian in my city? How do I start a guardian within my gym? Because these people have space already. They have the instruction, they have the mats, they have the insurance. They just need help starting the 501c3, tapping into their community, having an excuse to kind of bifurcate their programs from their paid students who can afford it to the kids who are actually in need. So now what we're doing is we're going into gyms. We just started uh, Peru a few months ago. We just launched LA last month. And basically, we're carving out space in these gyms for a guardian program where they can fundraise locally. We can help them with all the branding. We can be the 501c3 layer on top so somebody can maintain their gym and maintain their adult program and maintain everything else that they do, but now add a nonprofit component on top of it. And so that's where we're really focusing our energy right now and, and moving forward because that's a lot more scalable for us. And we can focus on, on, um, on really helping kind of all these people who are passionate in their local communities to do, to do what we want to do. That's phenomenal. Um, is it, is the gym, did you, uh, uh, shut down the gym operation? Um, yeah, we did. We did shut down the gym op our, our last gym operation in the East Bay. Mm -hmm. We're actually actively talking about an to another group here who has a great gym and a great kids program about, um, doing a guardian program. So we'll still have a presence here in the East Bay, but yeah, just as of a few weeks ago, we finally shut it down. We got all the kids who are in the program into another school. So nobody was displaced from sort of that, that transition, which obviously would have been really tough, but yeah, we just, we think this will be the most, we're very focused on because we don't get money from the state. We don't, we're not a big grant organization. Almost all of our funding is private donations. A lot of jujitsu people, for example, who understand the value of, you know, making this sport accessible to more people. We're very conscious of like not wasting money. Where can we get the most value per student? And if it costs, if you have 12 kids training and it costs you 12,000 months to maintain a space, well, that's $1,000 per month per student. If I can have kids in Peru that are training for $27 a month and kids in LA that are training for $52 a month, it's a really tough decision when you take a step back and, and take sort of the emotion out of it to say, 
how can we not focus more of our time and attention from our content creation and from where our dollars go to those programs rather than maintaining this expensive overhead just to say that we have a fancy HQ. Wow. Yep. It's, uh, it's good to, to really know what the mission is versus, you know, getting lost in the weeds of uh, running a gym when your goal is really to get as many kids doing jiu-jitsu as possible. So I really admire you for making those tough decisions. Uh, it reminds me of an early point in my career when we were growing Mixology, my clothing business. Um, we had six stores before Hurricane Sandy. Uh, Hurricane Sandy hit. I had a business partner, my dad, who uh, was the chairman of the business, and I'm very unemotional about it said to the partner, if we want to keep this business going, you're going to have to shut down three of your stores. And he said, if I shut down three of my stores, people are going to think I'm going out of business. And my dad looked at him square in the eyes and said, if you don't shut down three stores, you're out of business. <laughs> and so yeah. it's, uh, you know, sometimes these calculated moves, uh, it's not about ego. It's just about figuring out what am I doing here? Like, why am I doing this? Is it to have a lot of stores or is it to have a business that's scalable? Of course, you know, that was back in 2000 and, uh, 13, January 13. And that allowed us to make a, a much healthier, better, scalable business. The business that existed before Hurricane Sandy was not scalable. The business that we created on the heels of Hurricane Sandy is the business that's here today uh, with 15 stores. And so mm -hmm. you had to take that little moment to go backwards in order to go forwards and, um, and, and live out our mission. You have any favorite success stories? Like, tell me about like some of your favorite like kids who, who took this and, and they're doing things with, with, with their life. Yeah. I mean, we've got, we've had a lot of kids come through the program, you know, and um, I think that, well, I don't, I'll, I'll say more of a, a general thought and then maybe yeah. ratchet it down to an individual success story. But one of the things that I think is important about a school uh, is that you can kind of go back to it right and i think what you see with kids and you see this with adults as well but definitely with kids they go in and out of things right it's, it's hard to get a kid who trains from 10 to 20 and doesn't take a break doesn't want to play other sports i mean these kids are meeting girls or they're meeting boys during this time all of a sudden you don't see a kid for four months you're like what happened to john oh you know he got a girlfriend right he's 16 i'm like oh yeah i remember what that was like like and because yeah. jiu-jitsu is not I think like when you're in high school basketball, like let's say like I played, you know, you're seeing your teacher every day who's also your coach or at this school. It's pretty hard to like skip practice or not take it seriously. But I think jujitsu is actually very easy to just not go that day. Right. Unless you have a, a real a real reason or a real push to go. And obviously a lot of the kids that we're targeting with our programs are not kids with high two parent involvement. Right. These are a lot of kids who are literally doing nothing after school. That's almost always the answer we get, by the way. What would you be doing if you weren't here? we would be doing nothing. <laughs> so um, it's never like, oh, I'd be playing this other sport. And so I think this is obviously a big problem in America as social programs and after school programs continue to get cut is like, we need to stop spending so much money on incarcerating people for silly things and costing $100,000 a year, for example, in California. And we need to start putting more money and making the hard decisions to put money into kids earlier. Like we should be throwing money at kids between 14 and 18 not throwing money at someone in the last six months of their life so they can live an extra two weeks like that's just i'm sorry to, to like be so blunt about it but it's just a fact like we can't keep paying for things later in life we need to pay smaller amounts of money to help people earlier in life um so anyway to get back to your question um 
you know, so I'll just say before you before you go, if you have an individual story, think of, you know, investing is counterintuitive. It's very hard to think about investing in that way. Like I said, most people aren't entrepreneurs. It's not their natural inclination to understand that they have to go risk money. They always are taking care of a problem after. So if you took all the money that was put into our jails and our incarceration system and you thought this is the big this is the problem. This is the total dollar amount. How much could we spend to save it? That is the exact way that I think about fixing problems within my business. So many times I've been in, I have a problem in my business. It's costing me, let's just say a million dollars. I'll take a hard look at my budget. I have no room in the budget. But then I say to myself, if I invest in this problem, how much will I save? And so I've done that time and time and time and time again. I didn't have the budget. But it doesn't, it, let's just say it's going to cost me $100,000 to fix a million dollar problem. I don't have to pay $100,000 on day one. I have to start paying it each week. And so sometimes that's putting the right human resource behind the problem. Sometimes that's investing in a piece of technology. Sometimes that's buying an extra vehicle or doing something that I can spread the cost out over. And so people think about problems in that way. Oh, it's going to cost me $100,000 to fix this million dollar problem. I don't have $100,000. Well, <laughs> You have to re you reframe these situations on investing and they don't teach people how to think this way. This is not something that gets taught, although it does exist every single day in jujitsu because it's the same philosophy of saying, I want to get a black belt. Oh, yeah. Well, guess what? That might take you 10 years. What do I have to do? Show up every single day. You know, the more time you take off, the more. So I, I try to I business jujitsu, this project, it was formed in a similar way to your instinct. And all these young guys, all these teammates of mine, all these people, even older people sometimes, a lot of retired cops have been on the force for 20, 30 years. They're only in their early 50s. Now, I got this business idea. And they would come to me and start asking me questions. We'd be sitting around for hours after practice and after training, and they'd be grilling me. I want to start a T-shirt business. I want to do a flip. I want to start this. And I would just start telling them all these stories. And that's the way that business jujitsu came, just like helping people. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I was like, I'm going to write a book about all these stories. Well, think about it too. Like, you know, you're on the mat and you're on the mat with all these 18 to 30 year olds, right? You know, you're a little bit older. They know you're successful. You have a company, you've got a podcast, you've got some pieces of real estate, whatever. It's like, they're all aggressive, mostly males, right? That are trying to figure out like their lot in life. And I totally get it, but it's, it's such a great value for people like that to be able to sit there and ask questions afterwards right it's such a great thing for a 15 year old kid to be able to you know talk to someone who's 10 years older like what happened with i'm thinking this is what i'm thinking about doing in college this is oh well you know that's great but let me tell you what i would do different if i could go back and it's just that time that you get there that i don't know what you would call it that golden period after a class where you're sitting there and you're stretching and you just had seven hard rounds of rolling to me that is like the absolute best time in the world where your brain is just totally clear of any bad thoughts you're you're really present you're talking to people like there's really great friendships and conversations that form there after that time you know i've actually never once thought about that in my entire life but i'm gonna like assign a word to it like you're kind of high right yeah you're kind of having a you're it's like having a runner's high if you don't want to call it a smoking high or whatever you're kind of high after you've exercised like that and exerted energy and had this kind of experience and you're sitting there like you are having a, a, a almost outer body and you're thinking in an incredibly clear way. Uh, and then to have those kind of conversations, you're right. It is, it is very, very powerful. And to have an organization like yours that puts kids 
in that and connects them with mentors and people. It's just a great, it's a great mission. And I'm, I'm glad that we uncovered this, uh, in this well, conversation. How do, you, how do you stay friends with people, right? This is like a big thing that I think about a lot. So <clears throat> is, what is a friendship? Is it being, are we friends because we're connected on Twitter or LinkedIn or something like that? Like, not really. Are we friends because your phone number's in my phone? I don't know. I got a lot of people's phone number in my phone that I wouldn't say I'm friends with. So what is a friendship, right? And I think the beautiful thing about jujitsu is it forces you to have these multiple times a week in real life experiences with people. And it's very easy to build and maintain friendships that way. Whereas like, I'm sure you feel the same way as me, like some of your friends from high school or college or your early 20s or whatever. If you don't have that thing, like, what are you going to do? Get on a Zoom call with them every month and just check in. And, you know, it's, it's really hard. So jujitsu is like this forced platform with people who are almost 100 percent across the board interested in some level of positivity and healthy living and good habits. Like it's just it's an amazing I, I would argue that it's like a better than golf networking type thing <laughs> the way that it happens right and the yeah. people who don't take advantage of that when i go to a class and i go what's that guy do over there who is that guy what's he do and somebody's like oh i don't know i'm like you've been training with him for four years you don't know what he does and what his name is and where he works like that's fucking crazy like you should know everything about that guy <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't i don't get that right it's like to me it's great networking this is a topic that comes up on this podcast a lot with business professionals. Um, it's because it's not taught, you know, I've, I've, this is one of my number one things that I do when I coach and mentor people is, is I have to make them aware that they are networking when they don't even know. And that is a dirty, that is one of the bad things about jujitsu. It's like, Oh yeah, that guy, that's uh that's pickup truck guy. You know him. He comes on Tuesdays sometimes, you know, like nobody, they don't know each other's names. They don't know what, he, what each other do. And I was like, that guy's John. Okay. He's been here for six years. He's a plumber. You should call him if you have a problem. And he's a realtor and he's a teacher. And, you know, I basically know everybody's name. I shake their hand. And whenever I see new people, I walk up to them. I shake them. I look them in the eye. I get to know them. And uh, that's such an underrated thing. And being able to teach young people that who don't come from it. You know, I, I grew up around it. I'm very, very lucky. I had incredible parents, grandparents. I grew up with these things. Um, it was not an option not to shake an adult's hand and look at them in the eye. I would have been, I would have been scolded, you know, as a child. And so when I sometimes I meet these kids in jujitsu, their parents bring them in, and they look down and they give you the limp hand, and I say, you know, welcome, come on the mat, and they gain so much confidence from jujitsu. Um, and then you know, the learning the networking thing is just uh, is really really powerful. Let me let me answer your question really quick though, because I think yeah. I think they'll like this story about. Give me an example of something that happened at the gym that's interesting. This this only happened five weeks ago, roughly, so it's kind of top of mind. And as I said before, the interesting thing about jujitsu, I think, is for kids especially, is that they can come back and forth and have this safe haven. They might not be there for three months, but something changes in their life and they decide they want to come back, right? And so we had uh, one of these kids like that. You know, he trained with us pretty consistently, but you know, now he's 15, 16 years old. He's got friends, he's got other interests, he's starting to like girls, all these things. So he hasn't been as consistent. The guy who runs our program now is a guy named Calder Powers. He's an amazing guy. He's like a 27-year-old guy. His life was changed from jiu-jitsu. He literally looks like Superman. He's just everything like I want my son to be is like this guy, super positive. 
Wow. And he cares so much about the kids, right? So he's calling when kids don't show up. He's not just like, oh, it's fine, whatever. They'll come back. He's calling them. He's calling their parents. He's DMing them on Instagram. He's meeting them where they want to be met, right? To like try to get them back in the gym. And he's just young enough, I think, still that like he's cool, cool enough to them that like they don't see him as this really old guy like they see me. And this one kid in particular, he really liked. He's following up with him. And um, finally, he reaches out to the mom and goes, hey, like, it'd be great to get this kid back into the program. Single mom. Um, and she's like, yeah, like, I want to get him back in the program for sure. So he calls him the next day. And he says, uh, or he goes to the mom. He says, hey, can I go out with my friends tomorrow or today? I need to go, I need to go do this thing. And the mom said, no, you're go I talked to Calder yesterday. You're going to jujitsu today. After class, he comes to jiu-jitsu, does class, goes to his phone after class, of course, and he looks at his phone and he said, um, the three kids that I were with, was supposed to be with today, were all shot, and two of them died, and I would have been in the group of four on the corner with them, and I would have definitely been shot, and I may have been killed. So jiu-jitsu literally going to that class that day saved wow. his life because, you know, places like Oakland are, are literally a war zone. I mean, it is like... It is absolutely crazy what goes on, even in broad daylight today. I mean, people like you and me that have sort of very privileged, I guess you would say, situations now with, you know, where we get to live and the people we surround ourselves with and the space between our houses. Like, these kids don't have that. Like, they are in war zones in a lot of these cities like San Francisco and Oakland. And, um, yeah, just, just literally coming to class that day. I have no idea how he did a class. I wasn't there. But by being at the gym and having a place to go, he did not die or get shot that day. Wow. I just get chills just thinking about that story, you know. I'm glad we took time to really build to that and synthesize and, you know, bring that one up because I think that's an important story to share. And, uh, and I hope we can get it into as many kids' hands as possible and people's hands as possible because that is, uh, that is so true. You know, the, we are so privileged anybody who doesn't have to live in those circumstances anywhere in the world and has something to do like jujitsu to keep them out of trouble it's uh it's a really powerful thing let me uh let me share your site over here have it pulled up and i don't know how many while you're looking pulling this up i don't know how many jujitsu owners of studios listen to this right versus kind of practitioners like you and i mm -hmm. but my my sort of ask to people would be unless you're art of jiu-jitsu or marcelo garcia and you literally have no space left on the mat because you've got 500 kids in your kids program to me it's like if you have space why not consider something like what we're doing right why not figure out a creative way that we can get more of these kids in there and that's really what we've tried to create at guardian is this win-win for schools because i used to go to schools and say hey, we've got a guardian program. Look how many kids we are. It's awesome. Why don't you let kids train for free at your program? And a lot would say yes, but there was always this underlying of like, what's in it for me, right? Or like, hey, like I'm busy trying to keep my head above water and run a gym. And now with this sort of fiscal sponsorship program that we run, it allows schools to add this level or this layer into their school. And you know, if the fundraising goes well, it can actually be something that actually helps the bottom line for the school owner and gets the kids training for free, right? So I think like all business that's good and it's long lasting, creating that win-win is super important. Phenomenal. Well, I've got the donation page pulled up right here. And I am, as soon as we uh, finish this, I'll pop in this $250 donation for you and your organization. And uh, 
just wanted to say that it was great getting to know you. If I could be of service to you and help promote Guardian, just let me know. Keep me updated on your events. And uh, we didn't get to talk about it, but we, a uh, friend of the podcast and mine, Mike Constantiner, put us together. And a uh, big shout out to Mike. And thank you for uh, putting Ben on my radar. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for Mike for the introduction. It's great to meet you. It's awesome to see people that are using jujitsu positively in their lives for being a better father and you know being a better businessman and all the things that you're doing. So congrats on that. Right back at you. Uh, please uh, support Ben's organization. And uh, if I could be of any service to you out there, please let me know. Have a great day, Ben. Thank you, Jordan. See ya.